many of our deeply held values, uh, allegiances, assumptions that we carry with us in our current culture. So it seems to some people that the Bible is regressive, even oppressive, or just outdated. Four, uh, the Bible has been wrongly used as a means of justifying many horrible injustices in the world. Like slavery, people actually argued for slavery from the Bible, which is kind of weird because it was the Bible itself that was used, read correctly, that abolished slavery. That was people employing it in the right way. Or the idea of of manifest destiny. This is the idea that Europeans had the God-ordained right to come into certain areas of the world, uh, dispossess the people groups living there of their lands. That was uh, an idea that people actually read out of the Bible. How did they get that? We'll talk more in a minute about that. All of this to say is the Bible is a difficult book for many people. And if that's you, I just wanna say right off the bat, um, if you've struggled with it for any of those reasons, I can understand where you're coming from. Uh, I've had to wrestle through each of these really personally as well. Now, I'm not promising that we're going to answer all those questions today or this morning, but uh, this fall we're actually going to be doing a series that does deal with these sorts of questions in way more detail, so you just have to stay tuned for that. But this morning, I hope that as we look into our text today, at least some of these will be addressed, at least in part, and that we will gain a more healthy framework to engage the Bible as God intends for us to engage with it, that it might have the function that God wants it to have in our lives as well. So, uh, and the framework I wanna talk about this morning is not something that I've come up with. We're just gonna listen to how Jesus himself asks his first disciples to read and use the Bible. Um, So let's start here. Uh, Have you ever thought about what it might be like if Jesus were to come into your Bible study? Maybe it was on like Wednesday night at, at small group and Jesus came in and said, hey guys, what are you reading? Imagine if he began to lead that group. Here's some of the questions I think that would be interesting. He might jump in and and my question would be this, what themes do you think would emerge? Say you're reading some, uh, the prophets, the Old Testament or the Psalms or or the books, some of the books of the law. Like, what themes would emerge or what do you think he would have to say about these texts? Maybe more to the point, what approach would he take to reading the Old Testament with you? Like, would he hone in on, on, on just a couple verses and then look for some principles that we could sort of tie to our lives? Or maybe he would have some just sort of really comforting devotional insights for us. And where do you think the study would land? Like, what would it focus on and then call us to? What sort of response would it lead us to take in the real world. You see, in the last chapter of Luke's gospel, we actually get a glimpse of what it looks like when Jesus shows up for your Bible study. It's a fresh picture of of reading the Bible as it's meant to be read, and then what it will mean for us. Now, if you weren't here last week, it was um, Easter, so uh, what we did is we looked at the first 12 verses of Luke 24, and in these 12 verses, you see the women, they're going to the tomb. This is the resurrection Sunday, the first Uh, first day of the week, and they've got a bunch of spices with them. Why? Because they're gonna give Jesus a proper burial. They don't expect that he's gonna be alive, though probably they should. 
uh, based on the fact that he told them many times, I will, I will be crucified and then I will be raised again. And yet that is so far outside their expectation. And they get to the tomb and these two messengers say, he is alive. He's not here anymore, just like he said, remember. So that's what we looked at last week. And so Peter, uh, now these, these, these women disciples, they go back to the 11 um, male disciples and they say, we, Jesus is alive, we met these messengers and nobody believes them. Peter, though, he wants to check it out. He runs to the tomb, he looks in it, grave cloths are there, it's empty, and he, he walks away scratching his head and wondering what is going on. His head is spinning. Now, it's still the same day, first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, later, coming up to evening, and here's what Luke tells us next. This is verse 13. Let me read to you. It's gonna be a long reading. I just want us to hear the text this morning before we unpack this. We have to hear what Jesus is saying Now that same day, two of them, these are disciples of Jesus, they were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked. Gotta love that Jesus is playing dumb here. But it serves a significant purpose. He's drawing them out, setting them, setting them up for something incredible. What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Let's just hit the pause button for a second here. They've been studying their Bibles. They know that God has promised a rescuing ruler to come, someone who they said would, as they say, would redeem Israel. Sure, they've done their Bible study, but it seems that they're, they're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They hear the promises of God, but in a way that narrows them down as though the Bible were just about them. Listen to what Jesus says next. He said to them, how foolish you are. Ouch, Jesus, foolish, really? How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. They got the message of their lives that day. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened 
and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Obviously, there was another encounter that Luke doesn't talk about and the other gospels do where, where, where Peter and the Lord, they meet. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see, I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? It's always a good question. Uh, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence because ghosts don't eat broiled fish, obviously. He wanted to show them that it was really him present in the body. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a way of speaking of and summarizing the whole of the Old Testament, by the way. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm gonna send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And he's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now this passage raises 11.8 million questions for us, roughly that amount. I know, an exaggeration, but only slightly. Like, where does Jesus go when he ascends? And what kind of body is that? I mean, he can walk through a wall and eat a fish. See, we could do a 12-week study on this chapter, and that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> and so, I also have a particular problem with preaching on this text. Uh, my doctoral research really revolved around the themes that we read of today, and so I could go on for hours. I won't, but I want to. Uh, so, and in the first draft of this message, I was beginning to answer some of those 11.8 million questions, like what kind of body is this, and where does he go, and where is heaven, and the, that manuscript was really, really long. So if you want it, if you want that section, just email me and I'll send you all the stuff I cut out of this message. Because I want us to focus on just one thing this morning, because that's, you know, I don't want to give you too many things, because uh, we'd be here a long time. Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, opens to them the meaning of the Old Testament. And he actually opens the meaning of history and you and I within it. 
Jesus is teaching us how to read the Bible and why we need to. Jesus is showing us that what the Bible is about, and not just that, but what it's for, what it will do. When we tap into the meaning of that, that will lead us into a life of mission and purpose and joy. But notice again what happens in that first interaction on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Jesus rebukes, or reveals, pardon me, and then rebukes the interpretive approach they have to the scriptures. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Is that behind you on the PowerPoint? It is not. That's okay. He'll fix it. It's coming. We need to see this. It is possible. Not only possible, (laughs) it's more than that. It happens. Even for people with the best of intentions to misread the scriptures, to miss God's intended purposes through the Bible. I mean, there's lots of ways to misread, the, to misread the Bible, but I'm gonna mention a few that really stand out in our moment today. How do we misread it? Well, we can read the texts without an awareness of our own cultural blind spots. You see, every culture sees certain things really well and is often blinded to a whole bunch of other things. Whereas other cultures will see those things we're blinded to really well and they'll be blinded to the things we see. And so we just have to be aware of the reality that our culture sort of loads us up to read things in a certain way and to see things in a certain way. The people that were on their way to the Emmaus had a certain grid that they were reading the text through. And this grid ruled out the possibility that God's promised rescuing ruler, the Messiah, would have to suffer and die. They couldn't see that. The the cultural baggage that they were carrying, the way that everyone was interpreting those texts around them, basically said the Messiah will crush the others in in a military way. And unless we see that, we haven't seen the Messiah. And Jesus says, are you guys so slow to see what's actually there in the text? They couldn't see it. They had their cultural blinders uh, uh, basically shadowing their eyes. How do we do the same thing? Uh, Just one example. We tend to be locked into reading the Bible through a grid of individual self-fulfillment. What do I mean by that? Uh, Many of the highest values in our society revolve around personal autonomy. It means I can make all the decisions about my life. Um, I'm sort of the master of my own identity, uh, master of my own identity and destiny. I'm on the center stage of my life, and I choose what's right and wrong for me, just like you choose what's right and wrong for you. So from that mode of reading, we could easily go to the text and then filter out any of the things that are the radical nature of discipleship that Jesus calls us to. The things that are hard to do that will challenge and confront our sort of, our our, our assumptions, our values. Because Jesus will call us to die to my sense of having a certain (laughs) hold on our own rights, to follow along the path of discipleship that will lead us with a whole lot of other people who are not like me, who make demands on me, who offend me, and whom I need to forgive. Namely, we'll be called into relationship with the church. So we tend to read the Bible in selective ways. We might downplay the hard teachings, and in an individualistic way, where we see ourselves as the main actors on the stage, rather than God and what he is doing in history. 
And so we might end up even letting our, our sort of our social or political views, whatever those happen to be, drive the way that we read the texts, rather than the other way around, where we let what Jesus teaches drive the way we think about society and politics and the environment, etc. So here's one corrective to this. Uh, actually, I'm gonna give you one more than I've got here, but I think it's on your handout too. Number one, we need to read the Bible with people from different cultures, okay? That will reveal our blind spots. So part of being a part of the, the worldwide church of God is that we get to be near to people who, who come at the text with just different, just different blinders. They've got blinders too, but theirs are different than ours, and so they can reveal our blind spots and we can reveal theirs. So reading in the whole community of God is really important. Find people from a different culture, invite them to your small group and read the Bible with them. That'll challenge you in huge ways. Uh, that's on your notes, but not on mine, so I'm gonna find where I am. Here we go. Um, another thing, some good questions to ask. For whom is this reading of the text good news? Jesus says in Luke 4 that he came to announce good news to the poor, the oppressed, those who are on the outskirts, the margins of society. Does the way that we understand the Bible sound like good news for folks in those sorts of places? Another question we need to ask is this, who benefits? What do I mean by that? It's possible, and it happens far too often, that we can read the Bible and, and try to find sort of divine permission to continue acting in certain ways in the world or continue holding certain positions. We can look at passages of the Bible almost always out of context in order to justify ourselves and our positions. Here's one example from history, and this one's a little bit heavy, but we need to talk about it. Um, I mentioned in the, in, the, in the introduction the idea of manifest destiny. It's this notion that uh, some Christian people had that God had given certain lands to European settlers, and it was their divine right to just take it over. Now, how do Christians get that idea from the text? That's certainly not what Jesus is commanding in the Great Commission. He says we're to take the gospel this good news of Jesus and what he teaches to the nations. He does not say that we're to import European culture and squash other people with it. That is not what he asks us to do. So how do they get there? First, well, there's people who want land. And second, there's areas of the world that they believe have lots of land that if we can get in there, that will be really useful to us. So then, second, people use the story of God leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, and they said, oh, let's read ourselves into that story. We are the Israelites, right? That's what they're saying. And, and just like, well, now God did command Israel to go and to wipe out the Canaanites. Uh, we read back in Genesis that their sins were, were gaining in such a way that God was gonna use Israel to judge those people but that's a one-off in history. Nowhere else in the Bible does it command people as sort of a principle to go and wipe people out. Uh, never again is that commanded of anyone. But they said, okay, here's the story of the Old Testament, so let's read ourselves into it. And that would give us the right to say, okay, well, we go to the nations, maybe to Africa, to America, to Canada. They're the Canaanites. Therefore, we have the destiny to dispossess them of their land and often it meant more than that too, even, even not just cultural genocide, but just straight up genocide. That was a horrendous misuse of the Bible, but you, people used the Bible to get there, to justify what they wanted. So we have to come back to that question again. 
For whom is this good news and who benefits? Now, if the answer of who benefits is always me and not the rest too, we are likely needing to seriously reconsider how we're reading the Bible. So we need to read the Bible with an awareness of our cultural blinders without just seeking to justify ourselves. And we must let God's word in context speak to our hearts. That's the second point here. Um, we can read texts out of context. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but I want to focus on one. We'll see, and we heard Jesus say that the Bible comes to its climax in Jesus. The Emmaus Road disciples, they seem to understand that the Bible was telling a story and was looking for an ending, but they missed whom it was pointing to. Our problem is a little bit different than that. We often lack the awareness that the Bible is that big story, and we can sort of end up reading parts of the Bible in isolation from other parts of the Bible. See, if we, if we fail to see the Bible, though, as a single overarching true story, we can end up using the Bible kind of like a reference manual. We can sort of like flip it over and dip in and just find answers to our problems, or we can look for principles for how to make life work best. Now, I'd say this. The Bible does answer your biggest life problems. It does. And it gives you principles for how to live well. It does. But that's not its biggest goal. We might miss that God intends for us to encounter him and his mission for the world through this big story. And we'll see how to address this next. See, not only is, does Jesus address the issue with how foolish and slow to believe the prophets, but he gives them and us the solution. We see next, Jesus' own view of the scriptures and his place in them. Verse 27, uh, I'm just going to read it again. Jesus said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And Isaiah 53 speaks exactly to that issue as, and many other texts as well. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Notice Jesus corrects their view of the Messiah that he will have to suffer. That's God's plan all along. But notice too, to speak of Moses and all the prophets is to cover the entire Old Testament. Verse 44 says the same thing. This is what I told you, said Jesus, while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a way of speaking about the whole of the Old Testament. So first thing we have to say, Jesus sees the Bible as telling one grand narrative uh, a narrative, and I'm going to use this phrase, of universal intent. What does that mean? Um, it's the true story of history, and it has a bearing on every single person's life. See, by beginning with Moses, now often the New Testament attributes the writings of Moses and include Genesis in that, in that list. That's how they often speak of it. The very beginning is God creating all of humanity. And it has God's intent for humanity in there. So the story that Jesus is telling, this one big story, you can't just say, well, that's your religious text for your culture, and that's nice. I've got my religious text for my culture, and so this is how we do things. No, Jesus is saying this story covers the whole of humanity. There's no one who can say, oh, that's your story, no thanks. The Bible's claim is this is everyone's story. It's it. It's, it's, it's about God's intent to bring about his renewal of his original purposes that we see in the book of Genesis. So according to Jesus and the people of his day, the Old Testament is not complete 
You can't look at the Old Testament and say, oh, it's a complete document. It's not, and no one thought it was. It was a story in search of an ending. How would it unfold? How, how would this story end? Where is it going? What would fulfillment look like? As long as it was unfinished, it could be developed in several different directions, and it was. You see, for those who didn't receive Jesus and say, yes, Jesus is the climax of this story, here's, here's what one scholar, how he puts it. Bernard Anderson writes, the Old Testament does not necessarily lead to the new. It could and did lead to the Talmud and the continuing rabbinic tradition, or it could lead to the Quran and the tradition of radical monotheism. But Jesus, right here, he tells us that he brings the story to its end. He is the one who fills full the picture. It's all leading to him, he says. Uh, ancient Christian theologians and uh, preachers, um, great defenders of the Christian faith, Irenaeus in the second century, um, John Chrysostom in the fifth century, they describe the Old Testament like God painting on the canvas of human history. And it gets up to a point, and then the, and the painting's incomplete then. So there's this painting that's going across human history and they basically say this, as long as it's unfinished, it could be developed, it could be interpreted on a number of long, along a number of different lines, but with the coming of Jesus, when that gets filled in with the cross and the resurrection and the promise of new life, once that's filled in, everything else is read in relation to it. It's the climax of the story. It's the whole thing is going to there. So now when you read the Old Testament, you have to read it in light of what Jesus has accomplished. I almost like to think of it in this sense. I like the canvas idea of like the story going this way. I also think of a portrait. Imagine the Old Testament. A painter is painting a portrait. The Old Testament is like sketching the background stuff and they're painting in the clothing. But when you get the New Testament, the face of Jesus is front and center. He fills out the picture. Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. When he says about me, he doesn't just mean a few isolated passages that can be read in a messianic way. No, there are messianic texts. There's some pointing ahead to a coming king. But in reality, the whole of the story is leading in the direction of God sending his son to redeem and renew through his death and resurrection. So the Bible is a universal story, it's the one true story, and it has a bearing on every person, and it comes to its climax in Jesus the Son. But we also need to see one more thing. Verse 45, then he, Jesus, opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Something had to happen for them, where Jesus himself uh, often in, in the book of John, it speaks of the Holy Spirit having this role, and it's the role of the Spirit in our lives too. One of his roles is to open our minds to understand the meaning of the scriptures. See, Jesus, through the, the Spirit, illuminates their minds, helps them to see and understand the point of the story. Now, I just wanna talk about some really, sort of how do we walk this into our reading of the Bible. Um, number one, knowing that the Bible is a single story will help us if we begin to get lost in the details of reading some Old Testament passages. See, we'll see that there is great continuity between the Old Testament and New, but there are also points of discontinuity. Take the sacrificial, for, uh, sacrificial system, for example. You're gonna read a lot about that in the first five books of the Bible. 
But then you go to Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, and it will tell you that that system is over because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, for all times. So the sacrificial system, there is no continuity in that sense, but the sacrificial system will tell you why Jesus had to die. So you, just can't, you can't do without it, can't do without that text in the Old Testament, but it will lead you to Jesus, and you'll read the book of Hebrews, and it will help you to understand how to read those texts as a Christian. Um, Second, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter one, verses one to four, he says that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation of himself. So if there's elements of the Old Testament that kind of leave you baffled about God, that's okay. My encouragement is keep reading. Jesus will fill in and fill full God's revelation of God's self. That's not to say that Jesus undoes what we read in the Old Testament, not at all but he clarifies and brings into focus uh, additional information that we need about God and God's plans. And having that is actually gonna help us make sense of some of those troubling texts that we might have experienced in the Old Testament. Three, we need to read the Bible expectantly. Jesus opened their minds to understand it. Guess what? Jesus will do it again. He'll do it for us. When we come to the text and we expect him to speak, guess whose voice we're gonna hear? going to hear his voice. This book, Old and New Testament together, is designed to lead us to Jesus, as this passage says it does. So we are people of the person. That's not to say we don't need the book. We need the book to know about the person, but we're ultimately people of the person, Jesus himself, and we know Jesus through the book, so we need the book because we meet him in it. Uh, right now, our son Connor is in grade one, and he's been learning to read this year, and I am just fascinated by this process of a child learning to read. Um, we read with him almost every night, and here's how he's being taught, though. It's a bit different than what we learned when I was in school, at least. I learned to kind of sound out each letter uh, in, in, in the word, and, and so it kind of, I had this sort of thing where I w read each word sort of with all the letters, and I had to work through each of them. Connor's being taught to sight read which is different. It means that he can just recognize whole words as blocks. And let me tell you, he was way ahead of where I was in, in grade one. <laughs> Instead of having to kind of phonetically sound out every, every letter, he can just look at a word and read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And it's, it's, it's just incredible. Now, if he hits a word he doesn't know, then he slows down and he, and he works through each letter phonetically and, and he works it out. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this analogy on you. It might not work, I don't know, but I'm gonna try it. Uh, so here's how it goes. He's being learned to read in chunks, these word chunks. We need to do the same when we read the Bible. Here's what I mean. Uh, we, we desperately need to read the Old Testament because without it, we won't hear the themes and stories that help us understand what the New Testament is saying about Jesus. For example, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 people in the desert, we are meant to hear an echo of the Exodus story where Yahweh, Israel's God, miraculously feeds his people in the desert of Sinai. See, when Jesus does this, this miracle, we might be thinking, oh wow, this is in the Bible so that we know how powerful Jesus is. Eh, that's not why it's there. It's, to sh it's, sh it's way better than that. Not only is Jesus powerful, that's obvious, what you have to see. And you'll only hear this if you've sort of learned to sight read the big themes and the motifs and hear the echoes from the Old Testament stories. You'll only see this if you've done that. And here's what you'll see. 
that Jesus, by feeding a a great crowd of people miraculously in the desert, is saying, guess what, folks? Israel's God, Yahweh, is right here with you in the flesh feeding you. But you won't hear that if you don't know the Exodus story. So we need to sight read the whole thing, the big themes, and let them... Let them show us who Jesus is. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old. You need to read those big themes. Did that work? Does that make sense? Kind of? Okay. (laughs) Another point, and this is one that Colton and I talked about this morning. When we read these stories in the Old Testament, uh, don't get bogged down, say, in the numbers in the book of Numbers. There's some important studies that could happen there, but if you get bogged down in the numbers of the book of Numbers, you might miss seeing how the book of Numbers is about how God cares for his people. He feeds them, he leads them, he disciplines them. And we need to see how Jesus cares for us, feeds us, and disciplines us as we follow him. This kind of reading also protects us from missing the point. In John chapter five, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he's had this kind of interaction with them, and they keep not getting it. This is John five, he says, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And if we hit pause right there, we might be agreeing. Yeah, in the scriptures we have eternal life, right? Listen to what Jesus says. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If the Bible isn't leading you to a a personal experience of Jesus, your master and king who loves you, then you're missing the point. It leads to him. It's about him. A reading of the Bible will lead us to a person. And we should notice, too, that this is how Jesus' followers, the apostles, that's how they come to use the Bible. Read the rest of the New Testament, and you'll see this over and over again. And in fact, in your handout, I included a thing that says extra notes. And I go through the speeches in the book of Acts. And I want to show you that in, when, when, the, when the apostles open the Old Testament and begin to preach from it, they are not preaching the content of the passage. It it just like, we're gonna find some lessons for you guys and then work that out in your life. Every time they preach in the Old Testament, they end up at Jesus. And now he is God's ruling king, our master, the Messiah, every time. And that's how you preach the Bible. It leads to Jesus. Now, there's tons of, of the, the, the Old Testament instructs us in so many ways. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't do that. Oh, it does. But if it doesn't ultimately lead you into relationship with Jesus and under his guidance and care, um, that's something we need to, to be noticing and, and, and sorting through. Um, in fact, here's how he puts it in verses 46 to 49. Here's why they preach like that and why we do at Summit Drive too. He says, this is what was written, verse 46, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That's the messianic reading. That's what's written, he says. This is what's written. Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This is for everyone. This isn't just about Israel being redeemed. This is about God redeeming his whole creation. This is turning the telescope around and looking at it through the right right way. You will be witnesses of these things. That's the missional reading. I am gonna send you what the Father has promised, but stay in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. So our reading of scripture has to be messianic, leads to Jesus, but also missional. When we meet Jesus, he will send us into action just like he sent his first disciples to. 
to enact God's new creation in how we relate to each other as brother and sister in Christ. We put into practice the new norms of life under God's gracious leadership, and we announce with our words that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world for everyone who puts their trust in him, and we do that with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible doesn't just sit there being true. The point of this book is actually not just to inform our minds, it's to change us. It's that we would encounter the living God through it, and as we do, we are gonna be molded and shaped and changed to look just like Jesus, and we are also gonna be sent on mission just like he was. We, you and I, all of us, the whole (laughs) of God's people worldwide are now caught up in God's big project, his kingdom. And as we await the second coming of Jesus, we do so with hearts on fire like the Emmaus disciples because we've met Jesus himself. And like the apostles, we are brimming with the hope of the good news of Jesus, and we are also given the Holy Spirit that we might be able to be a part of taking this good news to the ends of the earth. And now as we come to the table, we do so with expectancy that Jesus will continue to meet our our need for personal heart renewal, will remind us of his ongoing presence through the Spirit, and will keep sending us out every week. I'm gonna invite those who are serving in the worship team to come forward.